Welcome to the A Fire podcast. Now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. Each episode features real and honest conversations with thought leaders from around the world at all levels of the commercial real estate and investing business, examining the ideas and questions fundamental to the future of our industry. Where are we now? What happens next? What should we do about it? How do we become better investors, leaders, and global citizens? For more, here's your host and the CEO of AFIRE, Gunnar Branson. PropTech. It's uh, still here, and it's only getting bigger and more important. In 2019, investments into various PropTech companies uh, totaled the unthinkable amount of $31.6 billion. That was double the year before, and in the year of COVID, even though the total amount was off by around 25%, it still reached $23.8 billion. And where did all that money go? What will these prop tech companies do to our business? I've asked Vincent Cicerelli, the growth leader for the Americas at JLL Spark, to help answer those questions. So thank you, Vincent, for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Well, uh, let's just start the conversation, I guess, with um, what does JLL Spark do? And just kind of give me the quick overview. Yeah, that's a great question. So JLL Spark, I think even within JLL, you know, broader organization, people are trying to figure out exactly what we do. But, you know, to put it simply, we are the venture arm for JLL and we, we fall under the JLL Technologies umbrella, which was officially rolled out Jan 1, 2020, but I believe if I remember correctly, it was announced in October of uh, 2019. So JLL Technologies is really JLL's bet on, you know, digital and technological transformation within the real estate industry. You could say that we're more geared towards the real estate services in industry, but where JLL sits within real estate as a whole, we provide all different services, um, whether that's on the market side of the business for transactions, uh, lease management, tenant representation, and then you go over to uh, property management and working with investor clients and occupiers. Uh, our team's working on a lot of really, really cool, innovative stuff within JLL Technologies, and we are just a small segment of that. Um, just to give everyone context, we are a $100 million early stage venture fund. Uh, our, we have a team, I think, right around 10 to 12 people, and, and I'm one of the growth leads for the fund helping scale the investments we've made, but we've got an awesome investments team in place that's handling the deal deal sourcing and kind of due diligence analysis. And then on our side, there's a few other counterparts that I work with throughout the Americas and, and more globally. So it's an awesome organization to be a part of. And, and I truly think we're helping pave the way for PropTech as a whole throughout the space. Now, I think I noticed that you have over 20 investments in, in PropTech companies right now, or or is this number off? No, that's correct. I don't remember the exact figure off the top of my head slash can't remember what's been publicly announced, but I think we're sitting right around 20 five or so investments to date. So, well, for, for that kind of level of, of investment in the last couple of years, how many how many firms do you review on a regular basis? Say, I don't know, every month. That's a good question. Monthly, you know, I, I, I don't have the exact figure monthly. I know I've heard upwards of, you know, 1,500 to 2,000 uh, companies annually. So do some quick math there and that gives you an idea of where we sit monthly. But really, 
I think today we are focused on, you know, a select few segments that we believe are emerging to be critical to the industry's reaction to the the COVID pandemic and also just the ESG initiatives that are taking place as well. So when we pick a segment, we dive deep on that segment. And I wouldn't be shocked if our investments team, uh, our investment team members go through, you know, 50 to 100 or so companies per specific pain point or solution they're looking for uh, a platform to invest within. 12 to 1500 in a year though. I mean, that, that's that's a lot of firms that are out there. You, you, are you seeing all of them or, or what proportion do you think of the firms that are that are starting up at this point? That's a good question. I mean, I'd be lying if I said seeing all of them. There's no way that's possible. Prop tech is such a hot category to be in right now. There's so much opportunity to disrupt real estate as a whole in, in all different segments and, and you know nooks and crannies of the world. So there's a lot going on. Um, I think our, our team, especially within JLS Park, having JLO backing us has given us um, a significant advantage where a lot of the other more traditional VCs are starting to, you know, tap us into the conversations, exchange notes and understand what are we seeing? Is this one group or this one segment that they're evaluating? Does that make sense? Is there a lot of upside there? Um, how can we strategically partner with one another to add value um, during the fundraising and then the ongoing, I guess, post-investment growth side of the venture mm -hmm. world? So I'd say we don't see them all, but we do work with a lot of very well-known, incredible uh, VC players, and they're traditionally bringing the ones that are, are crossing crossing their dashboard and, and really intriguing them. So I think we're seeing a lot of the good ones. Yeah. Well, what what are they doing? What are they doing to us? Uh, you know, what? where is uh, prop tech seems to me to be a broad range of activities that could happen uh, under, you know, property and technology. Uh, where are they focused? Uh, where do you think things are, are, are moving towards? It's a really good question. I mean, prop tech is a buzzword. And I say that with air quotes. I know you can't see it, but <laughs> people ask me all the time, what's prop tech? And I really just say, let's rephrase that and just call it commercial real estate technology. And okay. when we talk about commercial real estate, then you get into the debate. Well, what is real estate? And I'd argue everything is real estate. So anything <laughs> that impacts that in some manner or another, I think could technically fall in the bucket of something we'd be interested in or other um, VCs within the real estate world would be interested in exploring to see how it could impact. But today, you know, I think there's a couple areas that are, are really hot and heavy. Um, one being the the impact of the pandemic so we're talking about the return to the workplace that's something that everyone is wondering what is that going to look like what is that new normal and there's so many different ways that you can evaluate that whether that's workplace um, strategy and design or you know sensor sensors to leverage for occupancy planning and social distancing tracking um, all the way to just operational efficiency. Think of all the real estate companies, the occupier clients that got hit by the pandemic and think about those, the costs associated with that. People lost a lot of money. People had to lay off others. They had to you know, downsize or reorganize their business models to survive. So today they're looking at how do I you know, make up for those, that lost revenue? How do I find additional cost savings? How do I make my real estate portfolio? How do I optimize it? and find those cost savings, but also still provide the same services, the same um, you know, experiences to my employees or my tenants within my building. Those are our top of mind. Well, I'd argue that the pressure 
from the, from the tendency seems to be for more services on a go forward basis. A lot of the owners of office are starting to realize that they're moving more and more towards a um, a full full service kind of almost hospitality model mm -hmm. within the office context, at least in order to compete in an environment where you can work from home. Hundred uh, percent. You know, going traveling an hour to work so you can be in a crappy environment. You know, why wouldn't I just stay in a crappy virtual environment instead? Uh, it would be less uh, painful. So I, I I love what you said in terms of people trying to lower costs, certainly, but they're trying to lower costs and deliver more, wouldn't you say? Yeah, that's a really great point. I mean, you got to look at the different sides of the spectrum. One, there's a talent, uh, there, there's competition for talent in, in, in employee retention. So if you're talking about the Silicon Valley mindset, it's how many amenities, how many, what kind of experience can I create for my employees to get them into the workplace, to get them to join my company and stay with my company? But then vice versa, it's, well, how do I, you know, pick my office space? How do I design it? You know, who's the investor owner or the the landlord that I'm going to be working with? There's all different sides here, but I think you're, you're right. Uh, when you say people are competing to provide more amenities, more services, create a you know better overall atmosphere for productivity collaboration but then on the flip side they also want it at a cheaper price how do you do that i think technology is how you do it but it may take some time before it's at a point where you're actually seeing that economy of scale where things are getting cheaper and more affordable but if people begin to truly adopt real estate technology or prop tech that's going to just naturally happen it's the same thing that happened with tvs i mean you can get a 55 inch plasma for 250 bucks today Five years ago, that was what a thousand dollars. So things things do happen. It just takes time. What are the specific things that they're doing, even beyond maybe making the office experience work? Are they looking at other parts of our value chain, our processes, and you know where do you think some things might change or 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 are ripe for change? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, you know, where are they looking? I mean, the biggest question I think today is what is the new normal for the everyday workplace? Is it going to be a nine to five, five days a week in the office? I don't think so. Is there going to, are there going to be people who want to go back to the office? Absolutely. Are there going to be people who never want to go back to the office? Absolutely. So how do you offer um, the necessary tools and resources for that, that combination of, you know, different wants and desires from employees? That, that, that's something that's top of mind. And, and, you know, we're talking about flexible or hybrid workspaces. I think that's going to be the future. And you could argue that's been the future for a while. We work at, you know, regardless of your opinion on how that all shook out, they were five years ahead of everyone else building this business model. And there's a reason, you know, they might've been overvalued, but there, there's a reason they were ever even, you know, able to get to that valuation because of the way they were turning the traditional workplace as we knew it upside down. And I would argue they started the race too early and they were getting ready to lap everyone before they got fatigued and stumbled and fell over. And then, then COVID hit. And now, like more than ever, you could argue if they were who they were three years ago, they'd be ripe to just take the market by storm. But people are, are looking at that business model. They're learning from it. They're trying to figure out how to create this hybrid work, um, you know, workplace approach, as well as enabling their employees to have the, the necessary tools and resources to work from home and still be productive and collaborative. And then on the flip side, I, I think one thing that we haven't talked about is just the you know sustainability or ESG initi initiatives of these major occupier clients and also major investment corporations that are looking to limit their carbon footprint um, you know on, on the world as we know and, and and try to preserve what we have and also still hit that bottom line and have that ROI to keep their investors happy and keep them coming back to them. 
I, I wonder a lot of uh, a, a lot of folks uh, that I've interacted with when talking about WeWork, and, and you're right, there's a bias against WeWork because of the CEO and all the things that kind of went off financially. Yep. Uh, but even co-working in general, uh, especially over the last year, people have said, okay. Now that we've had COVID and everyone wants to have more distance between them, we're going to stop this shrinking of personal office space, that it will actually expand. And then people who never liked the idea of co-working at all then smile and say, and that means that co-working's over. You know, bye-bye. We work was wrong. Yep. How do you answer that? It's a good question. So you're right. You know, social distancing is going to be a part of our new norm. So with that said, you're not going to be able to create smaller, more intimate workplaces and have every employee feel at ease and be as productive, productive as they possibly could be. But if you think about it, you got to look at the workplace. And, and we actually have an investment in a really cool sensor company uh, called Verge Sense, who did a, an analysis of various office spaces. And I can't remember the figure off the top of my head, so don't hold me to this. But I want to say they found that something along the lines of you know, 60% of office spaces were underutilized. And that this was, this was pre-pandemic. So keep that in mind. 60% is a significant figure. And then you got to think, well, what are the most expensive costs on my balance sheet? Well, one is paying your people. Two is your real estate footprint. You know, how much am I paying for my leases across the nation or across the world? Um, so there's a significant opportunity to downsize your real estate footprint, but still provide the collaborative and necessary um, office spaces to allow your employees to safely and productively work and collaborate with one another. So I think what we're going to see going forward is maybe not as much true co-working as we work may have introduced with all these different companies, you know, going in and out of these flexible office spaces in major metros. I think we may see specific occupier clients shrink their footprint globally, have strategic, regional, national, global headquarters where employees are going to be going in and out of those office places, maybe couple times a week, or maybe even think about the the regionalization of occupiers, um, occupier clients leveraging one regional headquarters, and people can live where, wherever they want within that region. And once a month, they're going to come into the office, and they're going to meet with their team for, you know, two straight days, and then go back home to wherever their, their family is, and wherever they're raising their children. So that's one way to look at it. Another really cool idea that I know is being thrown around, and maybe throw back your way to see what you've heard is, what about the the adaptability and the reuse of the traditional office spaces we know it. What about converting some of those floor plates into multifamily corporate housing? So then people that are working remote a couple hours away from wherever their regional headquarters are, they could actually come into the office once a month. They have an apartment to stay at in that office. It's provided in the same building. And, and it's just a, a flexible, agile work environment where they, they come as needed. They have the resources to stay, to work, to be productive. And then go back to their families and, and, and work remotely um, whenever that is allowed, or, or whenever there's not a major project that they're focused on, where, where they need to be next to their, you know, their peers and their their managers and, and executives. I think it's a terrific idea. Uh, there are you know some obstacles to that. 
Um, even though I think architecturally um, and, and from an engineering perspective, I think offices could be converted. It's basically boxes. I think it's, it's very doable. Uh, I think there are some zoning regulatory restrictions around that that would have to get, you'd have to get passed. And there are, you know, certainly the cost of conversion. Absolutely. Uh, not only that, a change in business model. And, and that, I think, can often be the, the, the biggest obstacle. So all the other stuff, you get enough lawyers, you get enough engineers, you can fix those things. But changing your business model from what has been for a very long time, a very simple model of I buy the space, I sign up, I sign you up for a 10 to 20 year lease. Uh, you build it out. You know, we, we, you know, we make, we play some games to get you in. We pay you a little bit to help put up some wallpaper and, and carpeting and that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, it's not really my space. I've given it to you yep. in exchange for a 10 to 20 year lease, which I can then, you know, bank. I mean, frankly, I can now get, um, I can now get uh, a lender to underwrite it, et cetera, because of those long-term leases. Um, yep. So that's a business model. The business model where, oh, I'm running, I'm running a hotel slash apartment building slash whatever uh, <laughs> office, uh, and I have to operate all those things at once. And I really have to have a service company in place. And I've got to either figure out if I outsource that or if I build that internally, on and on and on. I'm, and I'm just touching the surface. That's big. That's hard to do. Yeah. And that requires a lot of different things to take place. From a user perspective, I think it's absolutely awesome. I think it makes absolute mm -hmm. sense. And at the end of the day, what the user wants, I believe the user will get. Yep. So the real question in models like that, and and you're not the only one thinking of it. You know, there, there, there's quite a few folks that are in the office game that are saying, what do I have to do in order to make sure that my office building is the first one that, you know, that Google wants or the first one that yep. that Goldman Sachs wants or whomever they're trying to go for. And there it, it's it's deeper than amenities. Amenities are like, oh, we'll throw in a gym on the, you know, <laughs> on the fifth floor or something like that. If you're thinking this way, you're thinking, what is the work experience? You're getting yep. really fundamental. And how do we serve that? Um, you have to start thinking like one of your startup companies and really re-examine everything uh, and get rid of all your assumptions, which is tough. I talked too much, but I love this. I, I think it's just a fantastic place to look. We're going to pause right now and complete this discussion in part two of our PropTech and venture capital discussion with Vincent Cicerelli, where we will talk about disruption and what we can do about it. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. No content included here is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information, including the AFIRE podcast, may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in the AFIRE podcast are those of its respective contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE. To learn more about the AFIRE podcast, including underwriting and guest opportunities, visit afire.org slash podcast.